Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air with you guys. My uh, faithful, ardent, loyal listeners, I should say. You know, there's probably nothing wrong with um, my saying uh, greetings or hello to all of you, my 101 podcast listeners. But I have no doubts that many of you who have been with me for some time feel as though you have um, exceeded the 101 level. And I would have to say that pretty much uh, a lot of you who have been with me for some time have definitely graduated above 101 uh, status. And for those of you out there who are newcomers, you will get that opportunity as well. But the reason why I keep uh, referring to 101, um, the 101 figure, is because when we um, end one book topic uh, podcast series and then we start another, we revert back to being in that 101 status. It's not 101 status just because of history, but it also reverts uh, back to a subject, whether we've talked about it before or we're back to it again, but we're talking about something different pertaining to a uh, subject, like, say, the War of 1812, the American Revolutionary War, for example. You know, just when we think we've learned everything there is to learn about topics such as the ones I just mentioned, we have to constantly be reminded that there is always something in between that we didn't know before, or maybe we knew knew something about, but we didn't get perhaps the whole story, or we didn't get the whole, um, we didn't get the entire, um, we didn't get a, a better um, description. All we might we might have gotten were just tidbits, uh, pieces of information, like maybe in two or three sentences, kind of like what the textbooks did years ago. I know I shouldn't be picking on the textbooks from years ago, but that's what I used. Um, Of course, I didn't know any better, but I also know that I had good teachers as well who really uh, were passionate about teaching history and did make it exciting. But, you know, it's just so easy to sometimes rely on textbooks from years past to give you better stories about what really happened when, in fact, textbooks alone they only provide you with a 101 basis, but sometimes the textbooks were not able to provide you with a story that went beyond the 101 uh, threshold. So don't, whenever I'm on the air and I might say hello to all of you, my 101 listeners, it doesn't mean that you're always in the 101 category. It just means that um, that when we have moved from one segment to another, or one uh, topic to another, I should say, we um, we aren't um, going back down to 101 forever. Think of it as just a, a temporary um, movement that allows you to restart from the bottom, but then work your way back up to the top. I know it may not be the grandest uh, description, but it's the best that I can come up with in terms of uh, description, and it's also my way of uh, saying thank you to all of you whom have been with me for some time and um, helping make this journey all the more worth the while because it truly has been a spectacular journey. I don't see any end in sight. I really don't. I'm always trying to find, um, I'm always trying to look for new books out there where either I myself don't know much about uh, story-wise, but I am willing to go the extra mile and find out more about 
a particular story that does int- that intrigues me to where I feel that it needs to be brought to you all so that you all walk away learning a little bit more than what you didn't know before. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? I mean, yes, I know that um, the world we live in today is um, it's a difficult one. There are a lot of people out there who who uh, tend to get their feelings hurt or they um, want to rewrite history, but they don't go about doing it for the right reasons. I don't know. It's, it's just a lot of um, sensitivity out there. And the way I see it is that, you know, yes, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but as the late um, U.S. Senator from New York, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, we're not entitled to our own facts. So one thing we have to be reminded of is that, uh, yes, we um, are entitled to our own opinions, regardless of subject. We just aren't entitled to our own facts. And when we start getting into this mentality of being entitled to our own facts, then it becomes all the more difficult to understand why um, a piece of history occurred, when it did, and why it happened. Then it becomes hard for us to learn from the past so that it so that we don't repeat the same mistakes going forward, not only in the present moment, but in the future. So it's always important to keep that in mind. I have to um, constantly be vigilant about it. I mean, I I don't think it's right to go around and with a mentality and, and say, well, I'm entitled to this or that. No, you're not entitled to your own facts. You're entitled to your own opinion. But as uh, John Adams said after the Boston Massacre trials, he, ba- he said something, uh, the following, like, you know, facts are stubborn elements. No matter, ha- no matter how much we want to disagree about who was responsible for the deaths of the uh, civilians, being those whom were against the presence of British soldiers in Boston, we have to be reminded of the fact that, um, that the soldiers did have, did have the right to defend themselves, given that many objects were hurled at them. And it got to the point where they could no longer um, take the abuse anymore, where someone did, one of those eight soldiers did fire into the crowd. And yes, it's unfortunate that some um, civilians lost their lives, but we also have to be reminded that, that, the, um, that the crowd, or I should say the unruly crowd, was not uh, protesting peacefully. They were hurling objects. And for John Adams... You know, given that he defended the eight soldiers, including their uh, commanding officer, Captain Thomas Preston, he you know said basically one of the remarks he said was that facts are stubborn elements; they are intangible. You cannot um, you cannot change them. You can disagree all you want, but at the end of the day, the facts that are brought before a, a jury, the facts that are brought before a courtroom, that is what it is, and you have to accept it for what it is, no matter how much you are willing to disagree on. But at the end of the day, the facts cannot be erased. So it's just an important reminder, especially in today's uh, 24-7 world where news is constantly around us. And, you know, we have to wonder, whom do we trust? Whom do we not? That's just my take on it. But anyways, I think it's fair to say that we better get this show on the road because we are going to be in um, part one of two to the um, Battle of Lake Champlain. We're at the point now, folks, where the battle is going to take place. And we're going to be discussing in this uh, episode the, um, the Navy. 
Now, I will point out that when we're done with this episode segment, when I'm on the air again next for part two of two to the Battle of Lake Champlain, we will uh, still talk about the naval um, campaign um, from an ending standpoint. But when I'm on the air again next for part two of two, we will talk about um, how the Army responds in its uh, defense of uh, Lake Champlain and Plattsburgh. So I think it's fair to say that we better get this show on the road while we have enough time uh, to um, John H. Schroeder's book, The Battle of Lake Champlain, A Brilliant and Extraordinary Victory. So here we go with our first leadoff question. What were weather conditions like come early morning of September 11th once the British fleet officially set sail for Plattsburgh. I know many of you are probably thinking to yourselves now, what difference does it make regarding the weather conditions? Well, I think it's fair to say we've learned from uh, previous episodes that uh, weather does make a difference. You don't want to be sailing out when it's raining, especially if it's raining cats and dogs outside. And, you know, at the same time, would you want to be outside if, if all of a sudden, well... You know, that's not to say a captain may not necessarily have control over weather conditions, but if weather conditions aren't ripe, and it doesn't have to necessarily be that in the um, form of bad weather via rain, but if wind conditions, if the winds aren't favorable to your um, advantage or really to your direction, you may not be able to um, get your crew out there you might not be able to get to the point where you need to be to be ready to take on your opponent. Again, we have to be reminded that um, conditions such as the winds, you know, captains, even in the 19th century, folks, are still dependent, in the early 19th century, are still dependent upon um, winds um, in terms of Mother Nature and guiding them on the right course. So, As for the weather conditions come early morning of September 11th, once the British fleet officially set sail for Plattsburgh, uh, what were those weather conditions like? Well, on the morning of September 11th, the weather was bright and sunny. And I must say, this is going to sound hard to believe, but I do remember on September 11th of 2001 that it was bright and sunny outside. Of course, there's a big difference. You know, a 100, there was a 187-year difference at that time, but I do find it hard to believe, looking back on it now, that it was very bright and sunny on September 11th, 2001, knowing what happened per the events of uh, New York City with the Trade Towers being attacked, the Pentagon, uh, the incident with the Pentagon in uh, D.C., And yes, it was uh, sunny in um, Somerset, Pennsylvania, but knowing that uh, 40 uh, passengers did something unthinkable and that they were willing to band together to to fight back against the hijackers and save countless other people's lives, including buildings like the White House, the Capitol, other um, vital uh, buildings to our nation's uh, government. But as for Captain uh, George Downey, he was under this belief or notion that once his ships attacked the U.S. fleet stationed in Cumberland Bay, that 
Governor-in-Chief Sir George Prevost's army forces would right away assault the American units on shore. Wow, that's a pretty bold assumption. I'm just wondering if um, Captain Downey, I'm probably going to mention this more than once, so I'm going to say it here right now to get it off my chest. I'm starting to wonder if Captain George Downey is starting to show hints of cockiness. In other words, you know, victory is right within our grasp, and all we just have to do is deliver a couple of blows to the Americans, and that'll be it. They'll they'll uh, they'll chicken out. They'll uh, not know how to put up a fight with us. And once they back away and um, and start running for their lives, not only do we have all of Lake Champlain, but we'll make our way down the Hudson River. We'll control the Hudson, and with the Hudson River control uh, linking to the Atlantic Ocean, we'll have that in our hands and slam dunk victory. Nothing else to worry about. Well. For Captain George Downey, he uh, fire he goes about firing blank shots as a means of preparing for the joint assault. He approached Cumberland Head, or his fleet, I should say, just after 5 a.m. on September 11th. All British and Americans on board their vessels were able to see the mastheads of each opponent's side. So... If you're on the American side and you can see the British, um, the British ships in terms of their mastheads, then you know what lies in store for you. For the British, oh yeah, we see the Americans' um, mastheads, but are they going to put up a fight? Well, you know what, you you know if you're on the British side, yes, you know that you have the world's mightiest. Um, Military in, in terms of Navy and Army, but that doesn't automatically mean that you are going to um, achieve victory. I mean, regardless of uh, what the circumstances are, but given the situation that the United States is facing, knowing it was just a couple of weeks ago that the uh, nation's capital was burnt, and now you have to wonder um, who's the next target. Is Baltimore going to be the next target, or what about this uh, village in the northernmost part of New York State that borders Canada being Plattsburgh on Lake Champlain, of all places. Well, it just so happens at this moment now, Lake Champlain in the village of Plattsburgh is that next spot. By 8 a.m. on September 11th, were both sides' fleets evenly balanced? Uh, Yes. There were four British warships, Confiance, Lynette, Chubb, just to name a few, uh, just to name a, a few of the four, you, and then um, on top of the British, the four British warships, you had um, eleven gunboats, which totaled right over twenty four hundred tons, with nine hundred and seventeen men. Very impressive. Whereas for the Americans, it was four American warships. USS Saratoga, Ticonderoga, Eagle, Prable. For these, those were the four American warships, along with ten gunboats, totaling around twenty-two hundred twenty-four tons, with eight hundred twenty men. 
So if you think about it, folks, there's about a 97, just shy of really a 100-man differential. The British may have 917 men to the Americans 820, but it's really not that far off. British ships carried over 90 guns with overall metal weight of 1,864 pounds, whereas American ships had 86 guns with a metal weight of 2,033 pounds. Wow, these are some very impressive statistics. You know, yes, the numbers can say a lot. And numbers can, you know, statistics, you know, can report just about anything. But what statistics can't determine or can't dictate is overall leadership. In other words, you know, yes, you know, ships A and B have X number of guns on their vessels, and they may have X, Y, and Z number of uh, crewmen, but what about leadership? Can statistics dictate leadership? No, statistics cannot dictate leadership um, at all. And I'll mention a little bit more about that here soon. Now, let's take a do a comparison here between um, Britain's uh, flagship, being that of the HMS Confiance, and the United States' flagship, USS Saratoga. For the Confiance, she is a 1,200-ton vessel with uh, 37 guns. She obviously has greater superiority over the United States' flagship vessel, the USS Saratoga, at 26 guns, weighing in at 734 tons. What would be one of HMS Confiance's um, strongest um, advantages besides the fact that she has more guns than the Saratoga? For the HMS Confiance, her strongest advantage had to do with the fact that she had 27 24-pound long guns. 27 24-pound long guns. They're not confined to just one section of the ship, folks. They're, uh, these guns are, con- are on, you know, we could say are on each um, of the um, starboard sides, on the left and the right or on the sides. There also could be some guns located along the bow and maybe a few from the stern. But I think it'd be probably fair to say that all of these guns are on both side, both of the, um, on the ship's sides as well as the bow, more so than the stern. But we also have to be reminded of the fact, folks, that, um, that uh, captains and their uh, crewmen are very skilled when it comes to uh, sailing. You know, in doing this without having to rely on uh, modern-day um, engines. You know, it's, it is crazy to think that they are relying on wind to do so much, but at the same time, many of these men, in terms of uh, leaders, they've been at sea for a long time. So they have obviously dealt with many of unexpected uh, circumstances in terms of sudden changes in the winds. Most notably, if you're on the British side. I don't know why I say that, but I say it probably because Britain being having the largest uh, navy in the world, and yes, army, but in the case with the navy, her um, presence on the seas is going to uh, require that her um, leaders know how to adapt to change from a weather standpoint at any given moment's notice. 
So as for the Saratoga, what advantage does she have that HMS Confiance doesn't? Well, before I get to that part, um, HMS Confiance's uh, strongest advantage, not so much with her having 27, 24-pound long guns, it was that these long guns of hers had a range of over 1,000 yards. So these, um, these 27, 24-pound uh, long guns, folks, are firing from long distance. You might as well think of them as the guns that could fire a modern-day pardon me, like modern-day torpedoes from um, underwater, like, you know, via submarines. But as for the Saratoga, what advantage does she have that HMS Confiance does not? The Saratoga, although she only had eight 24-pound long guns, but if she gets close enough to the enemy especially at a range of under 500 yards, she has what are called carronades. And I'll tell you all what, it, what, carinade, what a carronade is. But she has 18 carronades that are very lethal. Well, carronades, folks, are lightweight guns that yielded powerful results when firing at shorter ranges against an opponent. Uh, operating a carronade, or operating carronades, I should say, doesn't require um, an extensive uh, unit of men. It requires small gun crews for operating them. Now, I will admit that HMS Confiance carried long gun, not only just the long guns, but the carronades as well. But to be able to have um, smaller gun crews operating these um, lightweight guns at a range of just under 500 yards, they are probably, I would think it'd be fair to say that the carronades are just as lethal as the 27, uh, 24 pound long guns are despite the uh, difference in uh, range. So just because you may not have as many long guns as your opponent, um, one side can certainly find a way to make up for the deficit that the other side um, does not um, have. Did any other commanding naval officers under Captain George Downey know Lake Champlain well? I mean, we already know that Captain uh, Downey, you know, he came in at the very last minute and he had no uh, knowledge whatsoever of Lake Champlain. He he was not going to have time to understand um, the currents, the shoals, that um, lie along the shores of the lake. He was not going to really have any true time to um, study the how the wind uh, changes on the lake. But did Captain Downey, though, have anyone else within the crew that actually knew Lake Champlain well? Matter of fact, there were uh, two... Uh, matter of fact, he had uh, two officers... One was Captain Daniel Pring of HMS uh, Lynette. He was age 26. Very young fellow, to say the least. But then again, uh, when you're in the, regardless of whether you're in the British Army or in the Navy, you do start out at a very young age, folks. I mean, the military, if you want to make, make something out of it long term, it might as well be your career. But for Captain Daniel Pring of the HMS Lynette, he's 26 years of age. 
He was responsible for leading multiple raids to knowing Lake Champlain's northern end. William Hicks, at age 27, he was a 27-year-old lieutenant. He had been with the British Navy since 1805. He had participated in the British raid on Plattsburgh in 1813, including the assault on Vergennes, uh, Vermont, in 1814. I'm, I have to wonder, you know, I don't understand all of this um, change that took place at the very uh, last second that obviously put Captain uh, George Downey in a bad, vulnerable position, given that he also wasn't going to be able to establish any true uh, solid rapport with um, many of the officers and and the uh, crew below uh, in terms of building trust, uh, confidence. But if you had to make a change, why not give give the duties to Captain either to Captain Daniel Pring or to um, to um, what's his face William Hicks, uh, the lieutenant, most notably to Captain Daniel Pring. I mean, he just seemed seemed to know a lot. In my opinion, uh, reading about him, he really seemed to be a very well uh, talented officer for being under the age of thirty. But I think it's fair to say that even at this time of war, given that um, in the aftermath of having defeated Napoleon and forcing him to abdicate from the throne in Europe, that with Britain coming over to America and bringing the, a, a greater force of men, that perhaps uh, too much politics got in the way, especially at the last minute. You know, it's one thing to engage in politics with making decisions from a militaristic standpoint, but Engaging in too much politics can backfire, especially if you're replacing someone at the last minute who turns out to not be the right fit. As for the American officers, they are very young and untested. Might as well think of them as amateurs. They're not feared nor respected by uh, the British. We do know, of course, that Master Commandant Thomas McDonough is a vigorous and resourceful officer. But his disadvantage is that he had never led in battle. So this is going to be a a, a true test for Thomas McDonough. But by now, he has definitely gained the respect of um, the crew below him. He has proven that he um, has what it takes to lead. But the big test lies ahead now on September 11th. Because this really is, in a sense, folks, a victory. or The, the mission here, fo- folks, is victory or death. It really is. We may not see it, given that what took place down south in Washington, D.C., with the burning of America's capital, is destructive and devastating as it is. We do have to think about now further north what is going on and, and can America stay uh, united, not so much amongst her people, but as a, from, a, um, from a country as a whole, given that she, given that her existence as an independent sovereign nation um, is on the fringes. So she, you know, we're on borrowed time now more than ever. The government is running out of money. But we've got to score some victories. We've got to score some major victories that will keep the United States intact and perhaps uh, send a message to Britain that, hey, we do know how to fight and we are not going to fall to you. 
if we didn't fall to you uh, 30 years earlier, we're not going to do it again. So for um, Master Commandant Thomas McDonough, he does have uh, some disadvantages, though. He is without his first lieutenant, Raymond Perry, of Saratoga due to an illness. Lieutenant Stephen Cassin from the Ticonderoga is a valiant officer. I mean, he, he was a valiant officer, I should say. He had performed solidly in the defense of Vergennes. All right, that, that's, a good, that's good to know. Then you have Lieutenant Charles Budd of the Preble. He had served with McDonough prior, but he lacked a stellar record. Maybe it's fair to say that he didn't have a consist overall consistent record. Maybe it was one that just had too much fluctuation. Lastly, you had Master Commandant Robert Henley of the Eagle. He was known for a lack of adherence to Master Commandant Thomas McDonough. I'm sure many of you are wondering, well, if this guy has a lack of adherence to Master Commandant Thomas McDonough, then why is he on the water? Is he going to be the one that could screw it up for the Americans? Is he the one that's going to put us in a, in a hole so bad that we might not be able to get out of it? Well, who knows, folks? In situations like these, this is where we have to put the past aside, and, and we would certainly keep our fingers crossed and hope that, um, that, uh, that the crew will put their differences aside and work for the common good of the country. Of course, for um, Robert Henley of the Eagle, he was known for partaking in multi-micromanaging affairs, making him <laughs> stubborn. It's one thing to want to do things on your own, but <laughs> I think all of us have to be reminded that we can only do but so much micromanaging in our lives. Uh, did Captain George Downey have any chance in luring Master Commandant Thomas McDonough's fleet onto Champlain's open waters and attack from long distance. Now, this is where I'm going to where I'm going to get into here, folks. Is uh, the question I just asked is really more of what's going of what Captain Downey is thinking in the present moment. Ironically, he had a plan early on, and I'm going to get to that one here soon. But we've got a. Um, Right now, what we have to do is we've got to uh, focus on the present, and then we're going to revert to the past, and then we're going to get back to the present here shortly, or in enough time to where uh, we're back to where we're all on the same page. So, did Captain George Downey have any a chance have any chance in luring McDonough's fleet onto Champlain's open waters and attack from long distance? No, um, he rushed into battle with the flagship of HMS Confiance. As we all know, uh, the flagship HMS Confiance was not completely finished. And if the ship itself was not completely finished, is it fair to say that the crew itself was fully ready to go? Uh, The answer is no. So if this ship is not fully ready to go, then how do you expect the crew to have uh, complete confidence in their mission on board this vessel. Having full 100% confidence is not there. You might be lucky if you get 50 to 60% confidence level, probably 50, but you're not going to get the full 100. Captain Downey was insistent. He was very insistent on attacking the U.S. fleet where it's stationed along Cumberland Bay. Captain Downey, 
given that he was new to his post at Champlain, you know, he had uh, achieved solid success, you know, especially along uh, the Mediterranean and Atlantic um, Ocean waters, uh, most notably from the uh, Napoleonic Wars. All those successes are great. But come September 1814, he was in uncharted waters. No real firsthand knowledge of Lake Champlain, as I've said before, and I'll say it again. So his past accomplishments might have carried him some form of confidence going into the present moment. But his mentality was one of sure victory. In other words, we've got no, we're going to be okay. Uh, we're going to be able to fire some devastating rounds here. We won't have to use all of our ammunition. It won't take us long to do what we need to do to defeat these guys on their own home soil or on their own home water. And once we defeat them, it's all done with. We will have achieved victory. They will have achieved death. So I think it's very fair to say that Captain George Downey is has become very overconfident. It's one thing to um, dream of, of victory, but if you don't have a properly laid out plan, then victory is not going to um, come your way. How did Captain Downey, now this is how we're, we're going to revert to the past here, How did Captain Downey plan on concentrating his forces along Lake Champlain come September 11th? What was his original plan? He sought to place the entire fleet on the lake's northern end. Think about that, folks. He literally wanted to place his entire fleet on the northern end. Basically, he wanted the American fleet to come to to him directly, but the American fleet's in Cumberland Bay. And it's a good thing that they're in Cumberland Bay because it's not, it's not a, um, it's only two miles wide. And for his um, vessels, I mean, they did get a much needed break in the um, change of uh, wind direction from what we learned in the previous podcast episode. But even with that change, with that um, stroke of fortune with wind direction, it doesn't mean victory. It doesn't mean that things could fully go your way 100%. It's just a modified um, break. But to take your entire fleet and place it on one end, that to me, that just sounds too conventional. This is where you know it, it could backfire. Now, what I found interesting with these... Um, there was the number 64 here has some kind of a significant meaning here. 64 represents the total number of guns per the ships combined being HMS Confiance, Lynette and Chubb. Not all uh, of these three vessels had 64 guns total per each one of them, but you add all the guns, HMS Confiance having 37, and then you take the total number of uh, guns from the other two, and that gives you uh, 64. They had, uh, these three uh, British warships had the most guns. So with that being uh, the case, they had significant means to destroy 
the 20-gun USS Eagle, 26-gun Saratoga, being America's two most powerful vessels. Downey sought to navigate the confiance to the center of the American line and then fire two consecutive shots from the starboard broadside at Eagle, then engage Saratoga using port guns, joining confiance being Lynette and Chubb were to attack Eagle with Finch taking on seven-gun USS Prable. So the fourth British warship was HMS Finch. Well, you know, it's one thing to rely on um, conventional tactics or traditional tactics and to assume that you could knock down um, or destroy two of the um, Americans' um, most powerful vessels right away. But, um, you know, what you have laid out on paper or what you have planned in your mind may look great, but when it comes to actual fighting, it can tell it can be a whole other story because so many things can change in the midst of the fighting, especially the change of, of the of the wind direction. Um, if you know one or two of your vessels get hit right away, uh, so many things are, are happening in a matter of seconds, folks. I mean, it you know say we have to be reminded that when you're aboard these vessels, you don't get to control the direction in which the enemy's uh, firing. Um, comes at you. In other words, you don't get to control how they choose to fire their guns at your ship with um, cannonballs um, being fired at. So whatever direction the cannonballs are fired at, it could just be a matter of seconds before you either survive or you die. I mean, those were the rules of the, of the, of the game of war back then on the sea, but you did not get to choose uh, your fate. So you had to be on alert all the time. Did a change in winds have a sudden impact for Captain Downey's fleet after entering Cumberland Head after entering Cumberland Head? Oh wow, here's another trick up Mother Nature's sleeve, folks. Uh, yes, originally the wind started out moving north to northeast, but then moved west northwest where they blew lightly. Interesting. The winds start out moving north to northeast, but now move west to northwest. The unexpected change in wind direction, including perplexing breeze, kept the British fleet from reaching their primary positions. Captain Downey was unable to fire all of his guns from from the Confiance via broadside positioning at USS Eagle, Instead, he had to steer frontward towards the Saratoga's bow. So, come 9 a.m. on September 11th, American naval forces fire the first shots from Commandant Henley's vessel Eagle, but were well short of the primary target, HMS Confiance. HMS Lynette navigated past Saratoga to reach its place opposite the Eagle, Lynette fired her guns from one side at USS Saratoga, but fell short. The battle officially started when Master Commandant Thomas McDonough spotted and fired a single gun from Saratoga, 
resulting in damaging two angers, two anchors, not angers, folks, pardon me, two anchors from Confiance's uh, port bow. So now Confiance has, in, has uh, endured a, um, I, I guess you would call a mild to moderate uh, setback and that two of her um, anchors from within her port bow have sustained damage. Well, that's just the round robin. Now, folks, now we're going to get into some very um, intense uh, firing, intense stuff up close. You know, just when one side launches their bag of tricks, the next side, the opposing side, gets to launch their bag of tricks. But we're not, you know, one side who just launched their... um, their firing isn't just sitting back and, and waiting to get uh, dumped on. They're preparing for what lies ahead. They've got to reload. They've got to um, clean out the uh, smooth bore. They have to clean out um, everything that, um, that goes into um, operating these uh, carronades and long pounders. Because if you don't operate them properly, people will get killed. I, I mean, I've watched uh, demonstrations where... Uh, they uh, were uh, reenactors go about um, not only assembling cannons for firing, but how they go about um, cleaning out cannons. It's a very fascinating process, to say the least, but it's also a process that cannot be taken lightly because if you don't fire cannons properly, um, there are um, negative repercussions. You know, you could lose a limb or worse yet, your own life. So, it is not something to be taken lightly, not only uh, for, say, demon, we're not talking demonstration, but also uh, it really in a time of uh, combat. Uh, shortly after the naval battle began, did both sides engage in launching devastating blows towards one another? Yes. British flagship vessel Confiance under Captain Downey's helm fired what was called a double-shotted broadside. And for those of you who are curious to know what a double-shotted broadside is, I uh, looked it up, and basically what it means is is that it's a a two-round shot involving other um, forms of projectiles loaded in one single gun and fired simultaneously, resulting in uh, damage, to your uh, to the um, opposition's uh, vessel. In this case, Captain Downey's um, vessel Confiance, by uh, launching uh, by firing a double shotted broadside, the um, end result um, led to uh, striking Saratoga's hull, which struck half of the crew to the deck, killing or wounding forty men most notably First Lieutenant Peter Gamble. Half of the crew, folks, getting struck to the deck, getting killed or wounded. Based upon what I've learned from um, from uh, documentaries, and for those of you who were with me when we talked about um, a, a signal victory uh, with the Battle of Lake Erie uh, from uh, September of 1813, led by uh, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, whose um, American fleet defeated uh, an entire British fleet, and it was one of the very few times that a British fleet 
had um, surrendered entirely. Of course, the British commander being uh, Robert Harriet Barclay. But um, but we, in, how do I say it? The reason I'm mentioning that mentioning that is because when we uh, talked about that uh, podcast series ep- um, um, topic, we learned about um, the catastrophes on both sides. How uh, men from each side lost limbs in a matter of uh, seconds, or let alone their lives. Those who survived witnessed um, comrades of them of theirs die right in front of them, without even you know getting to say goodbye. I mean, some some uh, men saw comrades get their heads taken off by um, by the lethal firings of cannonballs. I'm not trying to gross you people out or my listeners. I want to say. But those are the scary realities of war, especially on the sea, in the, uh, ni- not just so much in the 19th century, but that would have been the same in the 18th and 17th century. Uh, technology may have been a little different in 17th century, but by how much, I'm not sure. But the bottom line is, is that people lost their lives in some very um, horrific ways. Not everyone died peacefully. So for those uh, 40 men whom were killed or wounded, many of them whom were wounded and lived to, um, to survive, obviously witnessed uh, other men around them not be so lucky. Well, the Americans under Master Commandant um, Thomas McDonough of the uh, USS Saratoga regained the upper hand shortly afterwards. So what did they have trickwise up their sleeves? Well, the men under Master Commandant of Saratoga fired a shot that struck one of Confiance's guns. And it wasn't so much that it struck one of Confiance's guns, but there was an officer at one of those guns whom lost his life. That was none other than Captain George Downey. Talk about a bad blow if you're on the British side, especially knowing that you changed commanders within a short period of time. So yes, Captain Downey's death was a huge blow overall, especially not knowing now whom would take charge. Captain Daniel Pring of the HMS Lynette was a bold and talented officer, but he was unable to fill the missing gap due to First Lieutenant Robertson from the Confiance, who really was the interim commander he was not able to uh, dispatch um, a messenger to Captain Pring due to uh, frigate's boats having been taken out. Talk about a massive setback. Which British ship was the first to surrender? It wasn't HMS Confiance, but it was HMS Chubb, as a result of enduring heavy firing from USS Eagle, whom shot away her cables, bowsprits, uh, the bowsprit, sails, yards, to main boom. Lieutenant McGee, the Chubb commander, endured a loss of two fingertips being shot off to getting wounded in the thigh by a splinter. I must say, folks, when you are fighting at sea, you are not safe anywhere when you are out, regardless of where you are positioned on the deck. You, you, are, you have to be willing to risk your own life just as if you were by land, but you better know that no matter what direction those cannonballs are coming at you, 
your life can be taken away from you in a matter of minutes. You could lose a limb within a matter of minutes. That's how fragile the, the whole situation is, especially at this moment in America's time. HMS Finch and USS Prable battled each other for an hour until the Prable dropped anchor. HMS Finch pursued USS Ticonderoga, but was no match as Lieutenant Casson launched a severe side firing, damaging Finch's main boom, mast, rigging. HMS Finch ran aground on a shoal. So when a ship runs aground on a shoal, that means they've hit flat, um, they've uh, bot- bottomed out, flattened out to where their uh, vessel is no longer operable. How intense was the fighting between British ships HMS Lynette and Confiance against, or I should say versus USS Saratoga and Eagle? Here's where we're going to really get into some, uh, get into some um, more intense uh, stuff. So the answer is yes, it's incredibly tense fighting. As HMS Lynette went on the offensive by aiming or directing her guns at Eagle, resulting in shooting apart the starboard anchor spring, basically taking out Eagle's guns to, to where they were ineffective. Commandant Thomas McDonough of the USS Saratoga, he, is, he hasn't used up his nine lives, folks, but after uh, what I had read in this book, it's a miracle he's alive. Is it fair to say that maybe God's looking after him? I would say so, but Commandant Thomas McDonough of USS Saratoga dealt with being personally injured to enduring multiple instances of unconsciousness, but yet remained steadfast in the fight. For um, Commandant McDonough, he realized that after two hours of fighting, that Saratoga is in a desperate state regarding her starboard gun's conditions. Well, he's got to do something different, but time is really not on his side, but he's got to do something quick before before something else happens because if his ship endures another blow, then his ship could be taken out to where victory really is within uh, Britain's uh, grasp. So what does Commandant McDonough do? He uh, called for turning Saratoga, which enabled the crew to remove or cut off the stern anchor, including cutting the bow cable, which in the end helped Saratoga get turned from end to end. I know it sounds crazy to think that, you know, you're cutting a bow cable or you're removing or cutting off a stern anchor, but these people know what they're doing, folks. They're not playing with fire, but they're trying to modify a situation within a matter of minutes to where it could be victory, where it really could, if they're not careful, it could be death. And not just means of dying, but losing this battle on the uh, water to where not only are you forced to surrender, but your enemy has control of Lake Champlain, and how is the army going to now be able to come to your defense? It just would make it all the more complicated. In the midst of the chaos, uncertainty, while fighting took place, Commandant McDonough truly did maintain self-control. In other words, he didn't panic. Sure, he was concerned, but if there's one thing an officer can't do is show so much um, fear and panic to where, if he does, 
then his crew below him will lose focus of all sight. In other words, they will lose discipline. They will break down. They will not know how to. Um, they will not know how to um, stay resolved and firm when the going gets tough. So, yes, you can as an officer you can demonstrate your concerns, your worries, but they have to be kept in balance. If not, then how are you going to know how to effectively command the crew below you when the going gets tough? Think about it, folks. Questions that we must be reminded of when it comes to uh, leadership. So, yes, Commandant McDonough did maintain self-control to ensuring that his men below him followed orders, which they demonstrated. Confiance, HMS Confiance, folks, is in a bad state of affairs. She only has four guns, or I should say port guns, intact. Lieutenant Robinson attempted to modify the problem, but the flagship's cable became very discombobulated, resulting in her bow directly facing the USS Saratoga. Confiance's hull is totally shattered. Several dead and wounded crewmen are located on Confiance's decks, it got so bad, folks, that uh, Lieutenant Robinson ordered some of his crew, whom were alive, and maybe they received a minor wound, but it wasn't catastrophic to where they could still perform, that for all of those men whom were dead, folks, I kid you not, Lieutenant Robinson ordered them, ordered his crew to uh, remove the dead and throw them overboard. I know that's a terrible thing to have to do with your own uh, flesh and blood being um, your own comrades that you're serving with, but if you want any hope, last-minute hope, whatever ounce there is left to try to um, keep a fight alive with the enemy, then you are going to have to do some things that are unpleasant. And they also were forced to relocate those whom were wounded to um, down below to where they would... Um, not be immune from further um, firing, but given the state of the uh, ship and uh, how it um, and how it was, I'm not sure how much uh, safety those whom were wounded would have uh, been insured, given how bad their state of condition was. And we do have to wonder how many of those men would have known how to have swam. Uh, the reason I mention that is because I talked about that even when I did the uh, podcast uh, book series topic, A Signal Victory, about the Lake Erie campaign from 1813. Both sides had many of uh, crew crewmen whom did not know how to swim. So if their ships um, were completely um, taken out of um, commission to where the, um, to where the masts, um, the cables, the... Uh, the whole nine yards was taken apart, and these uh, men were fighting for their own lives, which meant uh, having to jump off the uh, ship. Many of them, if they had a life jacket on, that's great, but obviously these they were not the same kind of life jackets that we know today. But for many of those men, they did not know how to swim, so many of them sadly met a tragic death by um, dying in the waters as a means of not knowing how to um, fend for their own safety. Very tragic circumstances, not just so much from one opponent's side over the other, but from uh, both sides within. So, uh, 
there are British uh, gunboats nearby, but the state of conditions are so bad to where there's just simply not enough men available to uh, keep this fight going. Lieutenant Robertson, in the end, was forced to halt the fighting. As for HMS Lynette, she had over a foot of water on her lower deck, and she too was uh, was uh, forced to surrender. Well, I'll tell you, timing and making last-minute decisions, for better or for worse, can either make or break one side and benefit and benefit the other. I tell you, Master Commandant Thomas McDonough was at the right place at the right time, not just at the moment for calling for turning Saratoga, but he he was there even when the going got tough. Sure, he could have um, been told, oh, I can't um, stay in this uh, fight anymore. I need to go get sent down to a lower deck or, or into a quarters room where I won't be hurt. Well, if you do that, don't you feel like you're abandoning your crew? Yes. In other words, um, to me, Master Commandant Thomas McDonough probably deserves to get a Purple Heart. I mean, he's um, he's fighting while semi-wounded. He's fighting knowing that he's been in and out of consciousness. If that doesn't say it all right there in terms of getting a Purple Heart, I don't know what does. But I, what I do know is that um, the United States, as of right now, is in a much better shape than it was two weeks earlier on August 24th of 1814. So, of course, we, don't, we won't know the news just yet of what has happened on Lake Champlain, but we still have a lot of un, unfinished business to take care of. And when I'm on the air again next, we will get into part two of two with the Battle of Lake Champlain. We will learn uh, some other stuff following the aftermath of the uh, naval battle, but we will now uh, we will, um, talk about the um, Army battle. Uh, and as for the Americans, it will be um, U.S. Brigadier General Alexander Macomb versus versus uh, Governor-in-Chief Sir George Prevost. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I will look forward to being back on the air with you all. And uh, thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be, but you all have made this possible. And for those of you who um, know of others out there who want to learn more about um, history, tell them to come to my site. They'll be, um, they'll, um, they won't regret it for one minute. Let's put it that way. Thank you for listening and uh, wherever you all may live, uh, stay safe.